Bridge connections have still not fully resolved tensions between the United States and the USSR. Satellite links have gotten people from either side of the Iron Curtain talking to each other, but mostly they're arguing. And so it's time to send in the heavy hitters. Well, thank you for this invitation. I've looked forward to coming for a long time. At 8.50 p.m. each weeknight, just about every child across the 11 time zones of the Soviet Union tuned into the same program from state TV, Spakunya Noche Malashi, or Good Night Little Ones. And what? What is your name? the pig has been the mainstay of Good Night Little Ones since 1964. He's a two-foot-tall piglet hand puppet, and today he's receiving a foreign guest, an American named Mr. Rogers and his shy friend, Daniel the Tiger. <laughs> Hi. 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 You're such a big pig. That day, Daniel the tiger and Crusoe the pig embraced and kissed each other. Thank you. The puppet encounter went so well that a year later, Crusoe decided to host two more visitors, this time at the Kremlin. Crusoe the pig wears his best suit to greet the famous celebrity puppets, Kermit the Frog, and of course, Miss Piggy. No relation to Crusha. The Muppets are in Moscow to negotiate an upcoming space bridge. They arrive in a Soviet limo and settle into a conference room to hammer out terms. That, that is not true. That is not true. Listen to me. Okay, I Grusha had learned well from Mr. Rogers. He tries generosity and offers his counterparts an apple. Okay, I thank you for the apple, and I offer you an apple and a pear. And I offer you an apple, a pear, an orange, and some grapes. <laughs> Finally, the exact details of our show This is the new era of U.S.-Soviet dialogue, when suddenly everyone is talking whether they're national leaders made of flesh and blood or national icons made of felt. In the early 80s, people had thought the big problems of the Cold War were caused by too much isolation and silence. But by the end of the decade, the Cold War sounded less like silence and more like noise. From Showcase, a production of PRX's Radiotopia, this is Space Bridge. I'm Julia Barton in New York. And I'm Charles Maines in Moscow. This is the last installment of our story about DIY diplomats who changed our world. Support for this podcast comes from Carnegie Corporation of New York, 
supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security at Carnegie.org. Глава первая. В СССР секса нет. For the first time in history, American women and Soviet women are face to face via satellite for Citizen Summit 2. June 22, 1986. In a format that had become familiar to Soviets and Americans, two studio audiences faced each other across the planet. Except for the hosts, Phil Donahue and Vladimir Posner, all of the audience members were women. You want to talk about this? Yes. I'd just like to say that a couple of issues that we brought up, homosexuality and um, equal rights, minorities, it's, it's kind of just glazed over. The technical barriers against talking had now all but dissolved. Each audience member wore her own earpiece so she could hear simultaneous interpretations right away. Our dear friends, these American women are asking questions about problems which simply do not exist in our country. That's why it seems to them that we're being insincere. The American and Soviet women talked about all kinds of things on their minds. Love, family, politics, the cleanup of the Chernobyl nuclear reactor, which had exploded in Soviet Ukraine only a couple of months earlier. But something else was going on. Once the technical barriers to talking were out of the way, the cultural gulf between the two sides became all the more obvious. At one point in the three-hour exchange, an older American woman noted how TV commercials in the U.S. were full of sex. And she asked if Soviets even had commercials on TV. Then, in the USSR, a woman named Ludmila Ivanova had a microphone shoved in her face. There's no sex in the USSR, Ivanova said. We're categorically against it. The Soviet audience dissolved in laughter. Everyone except Ludmila Ivanova, because when that space bridge was broadcast across the USSR, everyone, and I mean everyone, was talking about her no sex in the USSR moment. Ivanova now lives in Berlin, she sits in a downtown cafe, remembering the moment that defined her life. I meant to say that in the USSR we don't have sex, we have love, she says. But she froze in the bright lights of the cameras, struggling to find the right words. By the time she tried to correct herself, everyone around her was laughing. And then it was too late. The microphone had moved on. Her mistake made Ludmila Ivanova famous in the USSR, but not in a good way. She was nearly kicked out of the Communist Party. Her bosses at the Committee for Soviet Women berated her in front of everyone. Her husband, kids, they were all furious. She'd embarrassed them. She'd embarrassed the country. Everyone condemned me, she says. I suffered a lot. Ivanova has to stop talking as she remembers that time. Yeah. 
науки уходит. И даже Борис Николаевич Ельцин, ранее с такой же страстью защищал монополию в государственной собственности. In a nation where the state had dictated the limits of public discourse for decades, people were now struggling to understand a leader who wanted everyone to say what was on their minds. In 1987, Mikhail Gorbachev announced a reform initiative he called perestroika, literally, restructuring. Part of that meant restructuring how people talked, particularly when they discussed issues facing the country. But like Lyudmila Ivanova, many struggled to find the right words. Not everyone understood the new rules, or even if they were here to stay. Meanwhile, during the space bridges, these fast-talking Americans seemed to say whatever came into their heads. Sure, sometimes they were uninformed, but they just seemed looser, more casual, definitely more casually dressed. With the space bridges, Soviets started to see themselves on TV through the eyes of the other. No sex in the USSR became an international meme. And okay, it was funny. But with the Soviet Union on the receiving end of the joke, it also became shorthand for the uncomfortable feelings and uncertain politics of the time. Nightline will not be seen tonight, so we can bring you this special broadcast from ABC News. Americans were ready to lean into this Soviet discomfort and lean in hard. By 1987, Space Bridges had come to primetime news. ABC's Peter Jennings hosted a series of talks between members of Congress and Soviet leaders. And for the first time tonight, a discussion seen live and unedited in the Soviet Union on the subject of human rights. These debates followed a familiar format. Short films called roll-ins set up the topic at hand for the audiences on both sides, and then the arguments began, made a bit awkward by satellite delays and interpreters. Can you confirm or deny that, sir? In the Soviet Union, there are just 549 applications for immigrating to other countries. That's all. Night after night in this five-part series called Capital to Capital, Soviet and American politicians challenge each other. They've done their research. The Soviets bring up America's lack of health care coverage, our problems with homelessness, and our spending priorities. Americans pushed the Soviets on emigration policy, on democratic elections, on the occupation of Afghanistan. But the difference is the Soviets seem taken aback by the sharp questions, and they seem obliged to try and defend themselves point by point. American politicians have no such qualms. They've been on TV. They've been primaried. They are impervious to shame. He also asked you what the Congress was going to do about the burden of health care on many Americans, including those who are chronically ill. We're passing it right now, a catastrophic health insurance uh, uh, pact in the Senate. This is New York Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. May I make a point? I know some of the problems, and you, you really weep for the Soviet people. In the 1970s, the life expectancy of males dropped in the Soviet Union. It's the first time in the history of demographic statistics this has, been, look, this has happened. Soviets had gotten a taste of American hectoring during earlier space bridges. But these were policymakers, politicians, using the format to score what felt like cheap points, even if some of them rang true. Well, good, and we look forward to that, and we'd like to join with you if you could give us some sense that you're breaking out of that iron dictatorship from the Kremlin. That's what's holding you back. Everybody knows it. You know, it was really boring to hear congressmen telling each other, oh, we need peace or whatever. I mean, of course it mattered, but 
and it was still nothing like that had been. Longtime SpaceBridge producer Evelyn Messenger watched the political rhetoric of capital to capital in dismay. Even though it was her now husband, Kim Spencer, producing it, and even though these network space bridges were the apex of a new nonprofit they'd created called Internews. There's that famous saying, um, I'm paraphrasing, but the greatest ideas start as heresy and end as orthodoxy. And that is exactly what happened. The U.S. and the USSR signed the INF Treaty in December 1987. On the Soviet side, over 1,500 deployed warheads will be removed. It banned short-range nuclear missiles in Europe and seemed to signal a real reduction in tensions that marked the last decade of the Cold War. And lower tensions also lessened the need for televised space bridges. They were expensive to make, after all, and maybe now irrelevant. Except for one. The first ever primetime variety show created, produced, and broadcast by both countries. In December 1988, children of the U.S. and USSR watched as their best-known puppets held a space bridge of their own. The Muppets met as part of a primetime special that brought together very young children of both countries. In the U.S., it was broadcast on ABC and hosted by actress Marlo Thomas. Grown-ups knew Thomas for her role in the sitcom That Girl, for her marriage to Phil Donahue, and her creation of the feminist children's book, album, and TV specials, Free to Be, You and Me. The kids in both Space Bridge audiences had been exchanging gifts and letters as pen pals for a while, all filmed by TV crews. And they had the same shared humanity sentiments that Space Bridge viewers have come to expect. But the Muppets and their Soviet counterparts, they bring the sass. Now, from New York and Moscow, this is Pig to Frog. Hi-ho, I'm Kermit the Frog. Welcome to what we think will be an extraordinary evening during which a distinguished panel of Americans and an equally distinguished panel of Soviets will participate in an open and frank discussion of our differences. Now, first, Sitting at a desk with a Cyrillic nameplate that spells Kjormit, Kermit turns to his Soviet counterpuppet. Hello, Krusha. Hello, Kermit. Well, enough small talk. Let's get right to it. Thank you, Kermit. First, we'll watch two short documentaries on problems we see in each other's country. And as we agree... Krusha speaks into a microphone almost as big as he is, on a desk with flowers and, of course, a big red phone. There's a distinguished panel of puppets on risers behind him, and as with other network space bridges, this one begins with Roland Films. Here in Moscow, they say there are no problems. But try telling that to the heartbroken Soviet citizen whose all-too-familiar plight is the subject of our story. We see a pink elephant pining for his love, a Soviet ballerina who's defected to the West. elephant authors and dreams of joining his love before she marries someone else. Krusha, I hope your people were allowed to see all of that. Of course they saw it. Now please, roll our film about you. This is America, so-called land of opportunity. But here on Park Avenue in New York City, only the rich can afford to live. Despite our most diligent efforts, we were unable to find even one bear living in a building on this street. In this roll-in, the camera takes us down Park Avenue, stopping at a building with a plaque that says, No Bears. 
the doorman tries to block the crew from filming. It all unspools like a Radio Moscow expose of injustice in America. We then meet a homeless bear living on boxes downtown who remembers his one job on a Wall Street trading floor as a rug. But when plutocrats Marlo Thomas and Whoopi Goldberg pull up in their limousine and spill dollar bills all over the sidewalk by accident, the bear somehow gets the blame. They responded in a typical American manner, with a typical American solution. They blamed the media and they fired the bear. He's tossed across the street. The bear landed in the very spot where he began his search for the American dream. Very interesting, Crucia. Unlike in the recent Capital to Capital space bridges, the American Muppets look slightly abashed after the Soviet expose. Then the dialogue begins. The camera turns to Stepashka, a famous Soviet bunny. And now, please, a question about women's issues. Tell me, please, Miss Piggy. Do the American authorities force you to dress like that? No, no, believe it or not, she chooses to dress like that. Miss Piggy, in her pearls and feathers, is temporarily dumbstruck. Excuse me. Well, I think that's actually all the time we have. How dare you? Hit the theme. Goodbye, Kershaw. From New York and Moscow, this was The children in both audiences applaud wildly oblivious to Jim Henson's wink at some ridiculous aspect of adult life. He and the Soviet puppeteers paid a masterful tribute to the space bridge by mocking it. But despite the success of the great Muppet Puppet Summit of 1988, the big production TV version of Citizen Diplomacy was now on the way out. The thing replacing it was invisible, hard to imagine, and soon to be everywhere. That's when we return. Глава вторая. Прото интернет. С очень большой долей условности. It really is, and this is my old bugler marijuana cigarette rolling machine from the '60s. You ever see one of these? Joel Schatz is in his basement in Marin County, California, inspecting artifacts from his 80-plus years on planet Earth. A phone here? Is that a phone? By the way, my my first cell phone. (laughs) That's massive. No, it looks like a bread box. I mean, it's so huge, but it worked. Schatz has a white beard, white mustache, white hair tied back in a ponytail. He's looking for an analog phone on a shelf lined with old electronics so he can show how he used to fit two rubber cups over the phone's speaker and receiver. And this goes to this one, another way around. And the signals were just, audio signals would be transmitted corresponding to each key has a different audio signal. 
We started the company with this little box. It's just, just incredible to me. Schatz's company, initially called San Francisco Moscow Teleport, used this basic modem to create one of the first internet links between the U.S. and USSR. Schatz started his company in 1985, but the basic idea for it occurred two years earlier, when he and his wife Diane visited Moscow as self-designated citizen scouts. Once they got to the USSR, Joel Schatz noticed something really annoying the Soviet phones. Even the, the dial tone of a Russian telephone would go, when you pick up the phone. And often Russians would take their, their phone handset and bang it on the table to kind of loosen up the carbon particles inside the handset. Maybe they'd work a little better. Joel Schatz was a freelance systems analyst, a guy who wore John Lennon-style round glasses, who played bongos and thought about human potential. He'd once studied with the great post-war psychologist Abraham Maslow, who'd proposed a hierarchy of needs for psychological health, starting at the bottom with physical needs and winding up at the top with self-actualization. Schatz believed the bad phone system of the USSR symbolized a breakdown somewhere in the middle of that hierarchy of needs. It really was frustrating to make a call inside the USSR, much less to the outside world. To the Schatzes, that was dangerous. I mean, the system was so antiquated, we were just astonished that there was such poor communication between two countries that controlled 50,000 thermonuclear weapons aimed at each other's population, and almost no communication. So here's a hippie-looking American and his wife roaming Moscow, thinking about human potential and human connection. I wonder who they're going to run into. My name is Joseph Golden. I am from Moscow, and I'm here to help you. Joseph Golden. We met Golden in episode one. The Schatz's interpreter, a Californian named Anya Kucharova, already knew him from his work with the Esalen Institute, organizing the very first space bridges. As he always did with curious Americans, the strange raconteur Soviet utopian presented himself with a business card that said, Expedition to Hidden Human Reserves. Now, not every American took to Golden, but within minutes of meeting, he and Joel Schatz became friends for life. My cosmic brother, Schatz called him. Joel and Diane Schatz are among the few who've kept recordings of Joseph Golden, like this video of him giving a tour to some Americans. He's talking about a planned project in Moscow, a worldwide New Year's celebration across video screens. The plan is elaborate, fantastic, and entirely imaginary. Not that the unknown Americans in the video have any clue, but Joel Schatz gets it. So many people in the Soviet Union, because almost nothing was possible to do. You were judged basically on the eloquence with which you could imagine something happening if you could do it. And Joseph was an expert at verbalizing all kinds of visions, which may or may not happen, but he didn't even care at that point. He just wanted to continue to put out ideas, hoping some would actually become real. Some of Golden's ideas were bad, truly bad. For example, he once proposed that the Soviet Union launch a missile full of Russian-made gifts and toys into the waters off the Pacific Northwest. 
as a peace gesture. But he was the first to see the possibility of linking people in the U.S. and USSR by satellite. The space bridge could do an end run around the bad Soviet phone system, around state propaganda, maybe around the Cold War itself. Golden seemed to have friends in high places, and he knew how to manipulate the Soviet system in weird ways. Or he thought he did. By 1983, when Golden first met the Schatzes, the system had struck back. This is Irina Praleka, a Russian friend of Golden's from back in the 80s. She recalls being invited by Golden to attend the very first Space Bridge concert at Gosteleradio. Only when Praleka and her husband showed up at the big Astankana Tower, Golden wasn't there. Later, they learned he'd been committed to a Sikhushka, a psychiatric ward. In these years, Soviet dissidents and perceived opponents of the government are routinely given forced psychiatric care, including drugs, restraints, and other punishments. Golden didn't like to talk about any of this. When he appeared in public next, he was still talking about space bridges, though, only now in a new form. Imagine it's a stage. Yes. And we are two actors pretending it's very cold. <laughs> and we're running somewhere to drink a little bit. <laughs> and we're his attention turned to a giant color screen positioned on Moscow's central Arbat Street. The screen was called the Aline. Golden started spending time with the engineers behind the project, trying to figure out how to turn these screens into interactive portals. There could be one in New York, another in London, eventually everywhere. Space bridges for the street. When Golden met Joel Schatz, this scheme was on his mind. He called it the Mirror for Humanity. But a project involving big public screens would take time. Golden knew that. Let's show, we'll show you where is this uh, first floor. Yeah. He and Schatz started talking about something else, a way to push the visual connection through signals over phone lines, using modems and this new system called the Internet. So... Joel had one scheme, Joseph had another, but they both knew that the governments involved would be very wary of their particular schemes, but they hit on something which they could do together. That's journalist Adam Hochschild. He met Joel Schatz in California in 1985 and decided to tag along for his next trip to the USSR. Joseph Golden had asked Schatz to bring something called a slow scan unit. Slow scan allowed people to send images line by line over the phone or via radio waves. Astronauts had used it to beam pictures from the moon. Golden thought slow scan could be a quick and dirty way for Schatz's company, San Francisco Moscow Teleport, to create its own space bridges. We would take this box to Moscow and he and Joseph would set it up. Uh, and there would be an exchange between the two. And Joseph, who uh, knew people in the Soviet Academy of Sciences, which was enormously influential, got permission, he thought, to do things at that end. Joel had friends here in the San Francisco Bay Area set up to participate. The slow scan unit goes to Turkey by accident, where it's impounded for a while by the Turkish government. 
By the time Schatz and Golden finally get the machine to the Academy of Sciences and hook it up to modems, they just barely make their time slot for an international phone call that took weeks to arrange. Some images went back and forth and you could just barely tell what they were. People in the United States who knew Joseph recognized him when we pointed the, the uh, camera at him in Moscow and they said, oh, it's Joseph. And then they sent that image back to us in Moscow. But by the time it got back there, it was no longer recognizable as, as Joseph. But he was very pleased. And he said to everybody in the room in Moscow, I've been to America and back. And of course, he was somebody who, like most Soviets, was not allowed to go to the West and had never been. As with the early TV satellite space bridges, slow-scan internet exchanges got off to a glitchy start. But soon enough, Schatz got permission for a permanent teleport link between an institute in Moscow and the U.S. Okay, we can hear you distinctly. Very we would like your picture, Ken. All right. <laughs> we would like to see your picture. It's coming right now, I understand. That's wonderful. Joel Schatz and Joseph Golden began linking all kinds of groups in the two countries for cross-cultural conversations, exchanging slow-scan images for added excitement. They linked Soviet and American members of Alcoholics Anonymous. They linked maternity ward nurses. All with something people really didn't have a name for yet, the internet. There's not much recorded from this era, except this hookup between telephone operators. They were the ones who patched together phone calls between the Cold War empires. And he says, I'm, I'm sending my greetings, warm greetings, to our distant friends in the United States, who, despite the 10 uh, or 12 hour time difference. Uh, in the US, the operators were all based in Pittsburgh. Now, via slow scan, they could put faces to the Soviet operators they dealt with every day. It's so ordinary, it's touching. But in the background, there loomed a desperation on the part of the USSR to get its hands on Western computer technology. Soviet physicist Yevgeny Velikov had long been keeping an eye on all this intersection between citizen diplomacy and new technologies. He'd been drawn to the first TV space bridges by the chance to talk to their sponsor, Apple Computer's co-founder Steve Wozniak, to learn more about the breakthroughs in American computing. Velikov was also a protector of Joseph Golden, one of the people Golden would write for help when he was locked away in the psychiatric ward. Golden seemed to be a freelance scout for the kind of initiatives Velikov might want to do more of in the USSR. If he wasn't so busy dealing with crises like the reactor meltdown at Chernobyl. In 1987, Velikov finally got approval for an initiative that would combine his interest in computers, human potential, and citizen diplomacy. It came to be known as Velum, Vel for Velikov, and Ham for David Hamburg, who was head of the Carnegie Corporation of New York. The idea there was to try to find a common problem that both the United States and the Soviet Union had to work on, 
UC San Diego professor Mike Cole ran the first major initiative of Velham, and it would wind up pushing the U.S.-Soviet internet connection to a whole different level. Velham had permission and interest from on high to develop this new connection between superpowers. But the experiment looked on the surface like a kid's game. We designed a whole make-believe world. It's kind of like Dungeons and Dragons. It's called the fifth dimension. Mike Cole and his colleagues in Soviet psychology were using the internet for the first time to do cognitive research on Russian and American kids and the different ways they solved problems within a game. There would be cheap at that time, relatively cheap, Apple II, Apple, maybe a Macintosh, woo, a computer, maybe a PC. And we would take edutainment games or educational games or just pure shoot-em-up games, and we put them inside a make-believe world with a lot of rooms where you threw dice to get into it or you did with a lot of mumbo-jumbo like Dungeons and Dragons. The most popular mumbo-jumbo element on both sides was a figure called the wizard, Volshevnik in Russian, an entity who lived inside the internet and would answer questions in both languages and give clues about how to get through to the fifth dimension. It's a, a sort of magical but avuncular figure. Journalist Scott Malcolmson wrote about the fifth dimension for Carnegie Reporter magazine. You can imagine that when Soviet and U.S. kids are talking together, which was extremely unusual at the time, and they had both been brought up, as, as I was brought up, to fear the other side in the Cold War, it makes sense that you would need some sort of figure who, who both sides could trust, which was something that was missing in the Cold War. The wizard was Mike Cole himself, a bilingual expert in Soviet psychology who saw the internet as a possible way to get kids or anyone to cooperate. Computers were just, just an opportunity to get people to work on a common problem together that they cared about. So they see what other people make of it and they can judge the other person. They can triangulate on what reality might be. And triangulating on reality is probably the best humans can ever achieve. By the late 1980s, the internet was poking small holes all over the Iron Curtain. A young factory worker named Andrei Kolesnikov encountered it in 1988 when he met Joel Schatz. Schatz was looking for someone to maintain the Soviet side of a new version of San Francisco-Moscow teleport. By now, Schatz had gotten backing from financier George Soros. They would make this funky internet connection into a real commercial business, a joint venture with Soviet authorities called Sovam Teleport. Kolesnikov sat down with Schatz and saw a whole world open up. I mean, we sitting in a Moscow Soviet apartment uh, with a direct connection with a machine, which is somewhere in San Francisco, near San Francisco. <laughs> that was shocking. And uh, this machine was a part of the internet. Kolesnikov took the job with Joel Schatz, who almost seemed like a wizard himself. He was so weird. This kind of hippie Californian style with like open-minded was a killer combination. Let me put it like this. I believe in uh, Karl Marx and if there was no Joel, there would be somebody else. I mean, this was uh, just a part of the historical transformation.
because change in the USSR was now accelerating at an epic pace, and the openness to the world is driving it. All the top-down structures were flattening out. Good morning. Mr. Yeltsin, it's a pleasure to welcome you on behalf of all the citizens of, of Baltimore and to welcome you here to the Johns Hopkins. In 1989, a regional Communist Party boss turned reformer named Boris Yeltsin visited the U.S. at the behest of the Esalen Soviet American Exchange Program. So our sincere best wishes go out to Mr. Yeltsin as he leads the call for political and economic freedom. <laughs> Esalen had organized the very first TV space bridges. Now they were bringing Soviet politicians like Yeltsin to the U.S. Yeltsin did seem to be drunk for much of his visit, but it had a profound impact. As he toured American factories and stopped by supermarkets and schools, his frustration with the Soviet system began to harden. Life for Americans looked pretty good certainly better than he'd been led to believe. Yeltsin returned home and within a year quit the Communist Party. He became an open rival of Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. But Gorbachev had problems bigger than Yeltsin on his hands. The Soviet economy was in shambles, much of Eastern Europe was in revolt, and many of the Soviet Union's own republics had followed suit. Internal ethnic conflicts were flaring up too. In August 1991, hardliners in the Politburo staged a coup to try and stem the chaos. Military units took over Gostelaradio's tower, Stankana, and censored the news. The window to the world was slammed shut. But the leaders of the coup were unaware of one small window left ajar, the internet. While the entire world was scrambling for information about the USSR, Andrei Kolesnikov suddenly found himself and Savam teleport in the eye of the storm. You know, at that time, the connection was, you know, was really bad. The modem disconnected, you have to recall, dialing problems. Were people trying to get information out of the country or get information in? Out. I mean, there was no... Uh, it was really hard. I mean, if you disconnect it, you disconnect it. That's it. A standoff between supporters of Boris Yeltsin and the military lasted for three tense days. Finally, the coup plotters surrendered. A humiliated Gorbachev returned to power but Yeltsin was the clear victor, and he wanted the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics to dissolve. Within six months, the flag bearing the Soviet hammer and sickle would come down for good. The Cold War was over. The Soviet Union was over. Its 15 former republics went on to become independent nations. In the U.S., TV host Phil Donahue wanted to keep interests going in the new Russian Federation. He'd started a program with Vladimir Posner on CNBC. But now, just as things really seemed to be getting interesting, Americans turned away. The former Soviet Union looked like just another complicated mess in a world filled with messes. 
Phil Donahue, that master of talk TV, thinks the challenge for us was never really how to talk. It was how to listen. Our interest in the Soviet citizenry seemed to diminish when the fear of the Russian bear became less ominous. We seem to be more interested in somebody who can blow us up. Maybe it was a result of that space bridge, wouldn't that be nice, that caused this lessening of uh, curiosity. Maybe Americans were less curious, but Russians were ready to burst out of their former isolation, and the internet would be the means for many to do so. Across the new Russian Federation, companies with a head start, like Joel Schatz's, began laying fiber optic cables out of major cities, while mobile telecom providers sprouted up in a rainfall of outside cash. Schatz's company became part of something called GTS, also known as Golden Telecom, which was bought by Vimpelcom, now Vion, whose Russian mobile phone service is called Beeline. Beeline pumps out hundreds of ads like this one for unlimited minutes and gigabytes to upload selfies and videos. Not a slow scan unit in sight. In 1994, Mike Cole wrote a long, final narrative about his Velham experiment, connecting Soviet and American kids through games on the internet. The Wizard found out it wasn't just the kids who were affected by his study. He himself had changed. He was now uncomfortably aware of what was going on with his colleagues in Moscow at all hours. Waking up to a message from Russia, trying to get a message written and sent, before the Russians went to bed. It seems inevitable that the world is becoming, for some of its inhabitants, a 24-hour-a-day environment for human trans-global interaction, Mike Cole wrote in his final report. My condolences to those for whom our experience was but the harbinger of things to come. Глава третья. Прошли годы. Good morning. Yes. Please, let's turn this on. Thank you very much. Okay. I'm waiting. Hello? Okay. Hello? Hello? <laughs> Julia? Hey, Charles. How are you? Wait, I can't hear you. Wait a second. All of history and music and poetry and art and war and death and birth and love, tears, joy, games, all of it, on that little spot out there that you can cover with your thumb. And you realize that that perspective has, you know, that, that you've changed, that there's something new there. That relationship is no longer what it was.
Space Bridge is a production of Showcase from PRX's Radiotopia. It's produced by Julia Barton and Charles Maines. With Julia Alsop, Samira Tazari, DJ Kashmir, and Paulus Van Horn. Sam Greenspan is our editor. Our Russian content partner is Arzimus Academy. Music and scoring by Andrei Konovalov, Rombix, and Griffin Jennings. Graphic design by Dennis Landon. Julie Shapiro is the executive producer of Radiotopia. Descript provided tape transcription. Special thanks to the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Special thanks to Irika Litevskaya and Mika Golubovsky in Moscow. Also Alexei Sazakov and Artem Zadikhan for sharing research and recordings of Joseph Golden. Anastasia Garokova and Allison Hurd helped with additional tapings. And thanks to Joel and Diane Schatz for video of Golden on our bot and for the telephone operators exchange. To Internews for audio of Capital to Capital and to the Frida B Foundation for use of the infinitely great Muppets Space Bridge. Finally, a plug for S. the Singer and his rendition of Sting's 1986 hit, The Russians. We slow scanned it throughout this episode. Pick up the phone, Sting. Pick up the phone. Okay, well, let's work out the details by computer.